Uh, so let's go ahead and get started. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Kila, uh, which is on the east of Jishamon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, where 3,000 chosen men of Israel, um, with 3,000 men of Israel, to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hekilah, which is beside the road of uh, the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother, uh, Abishai, the son of Zerul, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. And so David and Abishai went to uh, the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army laying around him, or lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep uh, because, a, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went out over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you, and who calls the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is, like, who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your lord, the lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear and uh, where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this uh, your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the inheritance or the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a sinful flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned, 
Return, my son, David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious to, to, in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. That is the word of the Lord. Amen. So, and this story sounds really close to one we just went through and, and we just read in chapter 24. Uh, instead of two men, David had more men, but they were still seeking after Saul's life. They had an opportunity to take his life, and David convinced them not to. Uh, this, is, this is a repeat of that. I, I couldn't give you the same sermon, right? So I had to look at it from a different perspective, a different light. And uh, that was my challenge this week. And I will say that this was a challenging sermon because it, um, it, it, it just uh, it brought out a lot of thought in me and, and, and a lot of uh, conviction in me as well. And I, I hope it does the same for you. But I know one of the most frustrating things to see or to experience in the world is injustice. Uh, it's, it's heartbreaking to see it, especially when you have to see it personally um, or you have to experience it. Uh, the world is filled with injustice because there's unjust people. Right? You get that mixture of unjust people living in this world together, there is going to be injustice. Sin gets in the way. Sin gets um, ugly. Uh, sin causes a lot of heartache. And behind the sin is the man. Uh, we are responsible for the injustice that takes place in this world. And we have to understand that injustice exists in every facet of life. But... Here's the question. How does God deal with it? That, that's, that's the question. How does God deal with injustice? Or does God deal with it? Well, uh, the answer to that question is yes. God deals with injustice. Things don't just happen and God doesn't do anything about it. Things don't just happen without there being a purpose to it. Uh, we know from God's word that, that he uses injustice for his glory and our ultimate good. Romans 8.28 really summarizes that for us. So we... We know that we can walk away from anything that we face that we feel is like not fair or that is just um, that is just really hard to deal with. We can walk away from that knowing that God's going to use that for his good, for his glory and our good. But still, there's there's still this this question as to what is God really doing in our lives? Right. What is God doing individually, personally with with injustice in our lives or when we see others go through it? Well, we know this for sure. God does not let injustice stand forever. That's, that's 100% certain. He doesn't let it stand forever. He, he deals with it. Um, it's, it's really hard to describe and just awesome to see God doing this. But again, he uses it for his glory, our good, and he doesn't let it stand forever. He takes care of business, so to speak. So that is the Christian's comfort, knowing that the eyes of God are on the righteous and his ears are inclined to their pleas. That is the comfort we have. 
when we deal with injustice, we know God, is, his, his eyes are on us and that his ears are attentive to our prayers. So when we suffer injustice, we have to know that he is sure to act on our behalf. We have to know that. We have to know that God is not idle, that he's working. He's working through that injustice that we are suffering or that we are seeing. And that's really, really important because how God dealt with injustice, with the injustice that David was suffering, uh, teaches us a lot about our own lives. Because when we look at this situation, Saul will not relent. He continues to seek David's life. And David is at this point questioning him. He says, hey, what have I done to you? Is there any proof? Show me. How have I offended you? How have I sinned against you? What have I done that you are just, you are just persistent? You will not stop seeking my life. Well, God shows us some wonderful things within this story of how God is helping us with our injustice. So a holy God does not stand idle in the face of injustice. And I think that's a wonderful a uh, beautiful blessing that we can have as Christians as we live out our lives. Uh, first of all, we should know that injustice should be expected. It's, it's not, it should not be a surprise to us when we see it in the world. Uh, before I start, I feel like I have to explain something. I have to explain the reality of injustice, okay? Because uh, there's, there's a, a spiritual aspect that needs to be explained, uh, and, and, and it's very important, and then we can go on from there. But we need to understand that no one is completely innocent. Okay, let's, let's start there. Because I, I, all of a sudden, we, we may look at something that we're suffering from, and we're like, hey, I'm completely innocent. Uh, I haven't done any wrong. Everything against me that is coming against me, it's unprovoked. I, I didn't deserve this. So we have to stop, we have to pause, we have to, we have, to have some humility here, right? Because we know that we are not completely innocent. We can look at David. David's done some wrong in this situation, not that, re- that should result in his death at the hands of Saul, but he has sinned. And so in every situation that we're involved in, we must remember the element of sin. We have sinned against the Lord. We have sinned against others. So we're not like 100% innocent. That doesn't mean that we deserve what we are suffering at the hands of others, but we need to start there. We're not completely innocent. Romans 3.23 says that all are guilty and deserving of death. Uh, from a spiritual level, when we are, when we are compared, or when God calls us out, uh, he says all have sinned. All have sinned, and all the suffering that is going on in the world, uh, it's, it's deserved because of sin. That's where we have to start. That's a very hard place to start. It's a very humbling place to start. But that's where we need to start because that's where God's word begins us, right? That's where it begins in God's word. And so he starts us off from there. He says, everything else that you've received in your life that is a blessing, well, that's grace. You didn't deserve it, but yet I've given it to you. Um, so I, I feel like I have to, have to say that so that we can truly understand what injustice is. At our core, we deserve every bad thing that comes our way because we have sinned against God. Yet, there remains the reality of injustice. And the injustice that I'm speaking about today is the injustice that we suffer from creature to creature. Right? Even though we're guilty of sin, there are things that, um, there are, there are things that people have done to us that we didn't deserve 
that particular thing that they are doing to us. And that particular thing that they are doing to us is, is a bad thing, right? We didn't, we didn't deserve that. We didn't provoke it. We, didn't, we were innocent bystanders of that. And because of sin and because of other things that have come into uh, the, the lives between us and somebody else, we are suffering this injustice. So I, I, I want to put that down so that you don't walk out of here and you're like, yes, I'm innocent and I know God's going to get that person and everything's going to be fine. Right. Because there is an element of us that's guilty in every situation. And we have to we have to know that. So injustice is the unnecessary, unjustified ill treatment of others through the inflicting of pain or punishment. That is the definition I'm kind of working with here. Let me read it again so that you can hear it. Unnecessary, unjustified ill treatment of others through the, inflict, through the infliction of pain or punishment. Um, injustice has its origins in Satan. It works through the sinful human heart and shows itself in every sphere of life. Everybody's affected by it. We, we're either treated, treating people unjustly or we have had people treat us unjustly. It, it affects everything. It affects the family. It affects the church. It affects the workforce. It affects every sphere of life. And that's something else that we have to know. It's a real problem and it's a real struggle. It is a real struggle. Um, as long as we have relationships, as long as we have people in our lives, it doesn't matter how much we love them. Sometimes people do bad things to us. Sometimes we do bad things to people. It is a real problem. It's a real struggle. And it changes things. I mean, injustice has changed family dynamics. It has split churches. It has I mean, it has done horrible things to people who love one another. It, is, it causes great heartache. Case in point here with David and Saul and the injustice that David is suffering at the hands of Saul. See, as we read scripture, it's easy for us to like read through the story and, and, and think like, well, not, not have a concept of time. We read through these stories chapter after chapter after chapter and we're thinking and we're seeing Saul chase after David and hunt him down and he's after his life. And it's exhausting to read it because so far David and Saul has just been up and down, up and down. And Saul forgets about David for a little bit. Then he comes back. He wants to kill him. Then he says, oh, you know, you're my son. I love you. Then he goes away and then he comes back and he wants to kill him again. It's just like up and down, up and down. And, and we don't have a concept of time or at least a measure of time. Well, this has been going on for about nine years. So as we read through scripture, we need to think about this. Like, this is not something that has taken place over a year or two years. It's nine years, about nine years. And it's coming to a close. But this is what David has been dealing with uh, off and on for about nine years. He's been dealing with Saul trying to hunt him down. And again, David hasn't really done anything to deserve Saul's treatment of him. And then to add to his problems, uh, David has to deal with other people, too. In our passage, it talks about the Ziphites. That's the second time we've talked about the Ziphites, and they did the exact same thing before. They betrayed David. They're trying to take an allegiance. They think Saul's going to end up being the king, so they want to have favor with Saul. They want to give up David so that they can have an advantage there. They tried to give up David before, 
and um, it didn't work out for them. Now they're trying again. This is the second attempt. So they go to Saul and they betray David and they say, hey, Saul, we hear that David is in our in our territory again. Uh, why don't you come out and, and get him? And notice that it doesn't take much for Saul to be convinced uh, to go out and get David. It seemed like Saul was kind of minding his own business for a little bit. As soon as the Ziphites came to tell Saul David is, is, is here and they provoke Saul, it, it just it just a matter of, 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 of days before he was uh, willing to react. But see, their schemes, yes, they were evil, but they are not unseen. Uh, Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. See, there's comfort. There's always comfort. God is present. God is here. God sees. God judges. God is working. He's working. Even when we don't think he is, he's working. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Secondly, we see Saul succumb to the temptation of the Ziphites. See, Saul had repented, but now he kind of discards that repentance. We're starting to see a trend here. As I tell you before, if you see a pattern of sin in your life, you better start taking care of it, right? Because that pattern is, is telling you you are falling into sin. You are falling into a sinful pattern that's only going to end up in your pain, in your suffering, in your hurt, and, uh, and, and in your discipline. So here we have a pattern where Saul is really saying he's repenting, then he comes back and he, he changes his mind. And so when we see Saul repent, it's really, it's really a matter of convenience and nothing more. Uh, when he repents, it's because he's been caught or he's been given another chance by David. And he realizes like, man, I keep on treating David this way and he continues to let me live. I'm sorry I ever did this to you. Hey, you don't have to worry about me chasing you anymore. I'm going to go back home. And then all of a sudden, all it takes is somebody to come in his ear and say, hey, David's, we know where David is again. And he just flares up and he goes and he chases after David again. So when we see his repentance, we see that it's purely emotional and not at all spiritual. In other words, his head had been convinced, but his heart remained hard. Right. In his head, he said, what I'm doing is wrong. We, we do that all the time. But in our heart, we still want to do it. Right? It's, it's, it's wonderful when the two come together. In our head, we say, I know what I'm doing is wrong. And in our heart, we know that we, should, we need to stop doing it. Our heart is molded by the Lord. But in this instance, he has a hard heart. So in his head, he knows it's wrong. And yet, his heart brings judgment on him. Because even though he knows it's wrong, he continues to live in that sin. Many walk around with conviction, but no heart change. We have to be honest we, when we look. Uh, we've been guilty of that. We walk around convinced that our sin is real, that it's damaging, that it needs to change, but yet our heart just holds on to it, and we continue to sin. Our heart brings judgment against us, and that's a picture of many who walk around in this world See, for repentance to be real, it requires the changing of the mind and the will away from sin and towards God. That's what true repentance is. True repentance is not, hey, I'm sorry, please forgive me, let's forget about this. If that were true repentance, that'd be really, really easy. It'd be easy to, to, to ask for and very hard 
to, to, uh, to answer that, to accept that. But repentance goes deeper than that. It's a change of the mind, and it's a change of the will away from sin and towards God. And, but Saul, Saul continues to walk in disobedience towards the Lord. See, the Lord had commanded him to be Israel's protector and provider. He is supposed to be the protector and provider to his people. He's the first king of the nation. He is to be the Lord's representative before the Israelites. Instead, Saul became consumed with his own passions, his own glory, and uh, he started to determine right and wrong according to himself. He was doing what was right in his own eyes. He discarded the Lord, the Lord's word. He said, basically, I am I am God. I am Israel's God, and I will judge accordingly. And basically saw his life as really not answering to anybody else. David, he keeps on going through ups and downs. He has times of peace, and then there are times of turmoil. Life for David is a blessing and a curse. I have to give credit to my wife for that because we were talking about that. And she said that yesterday we were talking about how something was a blessing and a curse. And I said, isn't that like... That's how you define life. It truly, it's a blessing and a curse. Literally, go look at Genesis. It's a blessing and a curse. Uh, the Lord has cursed our lives. But yet, he has saved us from that curse. But yet, we suffer the consequences of that curse. It is a blessing and a curse. It is a life is a full with, with all these blessings that we deal with, kind of like David, there's all these blessings that, that he was dealing with, and then there are these difficult curses that we have to encounter and we have to uh, live, live life in. It reminds me that we cry coming into the world and we cry going out, right? We don't stop crying. We don't stop hurting. We don't stop hoping. That's That's life. That's life, and I'll get away, I'll stop getting negative because I can just continue on and on and on. I'm, you know, getting negative, and it'll lead to the praise of his glory, but, but, but some people don't like me being too negative, so I'll, I'll stop that. The Lord said that we shouldn't be surprised by our trouble. Should not be surprised by our trouble. In fact, it is to be expected. Look at the life of Jesus. Jesus struggled and Warn that we would suffer the same. That is powerful. The fact that Jesus, the creator of all things, struggled in this world that he created. His struggle was real. He suffered injustice. And we look at our lives and we're like, well, why do I have to suffer? Well, why did Jesus have to suffer? It's, it, I don't know why we do that to ourselves where we, we forget that Trouble is a part of life. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And he's praying for this peace that we have. But notice what follows. In the world, you will have tribulation. In the world, you will have trouble. In the world, you will have heartache. In this world, you'll be devastated sometimes. This world will chew you up and spit you out. You'll feel left alone, deserted, hated. The, the, all these things I have talked about, these are things that Christ went through. Things that he felt. But take heart. 
He says, I have overcome the world. That's awesome. It's to be expected, but we're to have peace within it. It's not to bring like anxiety in us. It's not to uh, direct us, lead us in this life, our tribulation. When we go through it, we still follow Christ. When we go through it, yeah, we're going to be worried, but we have the peace of the Lord to bring us back to center. And we're always reminded that the Lord has overcome the world for us. So that's the important thing that, that we need to realize that injustice is to be expected. But here's the second thing. The Lord sees and judges injustice. And that is, that is awesome. Um, trouble has a master and the Lord is his name. See, since there is right and wrong, there must be a judge. Well, God is the judge. His word is the law. God judges according to the law, according to his word. And he judges rightly in every sense of the word. It, it amazes me sometimes the headlines I read about federal judges, any kind of judge, just ruling a case in a way that it makes you scratch your head. You're like, what, what are they thinking? What are they going by? And it reminds me of Saul. A lot of judges just go by their own personal opinion about something. They don't really follow the law as it, as it, as it was intended. Well, God wrote the law. God governs the law. He sees everything everywhere. And he judges everything according to the law perfectly. See, when we are wrong, we know that God does not, is not idle, but he acts accordingly. He acts accordingly and he judges according to his word. David reveals that the Lord rewards those who are faithful. Look at verse 23. He says, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. I think those two words are very important. Righteousness means honesty, justice, and justness. Right? So that's, that's us acting in a way that pleases God. Honesty, justice, and justness. And then there is faithfulness. Faithfulness can be defined as steadfastness. Now, what's interesting is when you put those two together and you, try, you make a determination of what, what uh, David is saying here. Righteousness and faithfulness are measured against his commands and his word. That's how God determines what is righteous and what is faithful, right? So one is considered righteous if he obeys God. That's pretty simple. One is considered faithful if he is steadfast in obeying God. Catch that? One is righteous if he obeys God. That's a single act. If we perform this single act, we obey God's word, then we please God. We're considered righteous. Well, faithfulness is the continual practice of righteousness. It's, it's, it's a lifestyle. We, it's, it, that's why we are to live in the Christian faith. That's why we are to live according to God's word. We live every single day. We go to sleep thinking about God's word. We wake up thinking about God's word. We eat thinking about God's word. That's the way it should be at least. Listen to this out of Colossians chapter 1. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. I love that. Righteousness and faithfulness together. Paul says, hey, there is a level of righteousness that you have to attain. And by that, I mean, you you need to obey God's word. And, and, And if you do, all these promises are available to you. But notice, hey, you don't just have to do it one time. Notice what he says. These promises are available to you if you indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. You must remain. You must remain. If you are disconnected from Christ, then you're disconnected from your life source. Your complete life source. Not only the life that you have physically, but spiritually as well. See, David and Saul, when we see them in Scripture, they're put against each other many times. One is the picture of faithfulness, and the other is a picture of unfaithfulness. One is a picture of righteousness, the other one is a picture of unrighteousness. It's putting them together. It's really neat, too, because they're both kings, right? One was picked, Saul was picked by the people, David was picked by God. It, it, the, 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 the comparisons are just wonderful to look at, and we can see what God is doing here in the life of David. Um, he's putting him up against Saul and saying, David... David is my chosen king. Just like when you put Christ up against everybody else. You can get all the heroes from the Old Testament. You notice they sin, they sin, they sin. You bring Christ, Christ enters the world. He's the only one who doesn't sin. That's what David is to represent. He is God's true anointed one. He did not sin. He saved us. So Saul... But Saul, when we look at Saul, he seemed impressive, really impressive. I think if you and I were to meet Saul uh, without seeing all the stuff that he has done, because there are a lot of people who are, I mean, people are very good at hiding things. So I think initially, if we were to meet Saul, we, we would be impressed by him. But God saw his heart and God judged him. Um, when you look at Saul, he was very influential. He was a king, so he was powerful. He was persuasive. He was physically impressive. He was taller than everybody else. That's why the people picked him. He was handsome, he was well-spoken, and he was well-mannered most of the time when he wasn't raging, right? That's impressive to us, but God's not impressed by that. God's not impressed by the clothes that we wear, how much money we have, what our family has done, what we have done, what is he impressed by? What is he pleased by? Righteousness and faithfulness to his word. That's what he's pleased by. So even though Saul was influential, powerful, persuasive, physically impressive, well-spoken and well-mannered, it didn't matter. God saw his heart. And God's justice perfectly drew out the real intentions of Saul's heart. Saul seemed to be convicted, again, here in our passage. But he did not follow through with true repentance. He did not follow through with righteousness and faithfulness. Saul said to David in verse 21, 
Again, when he's caught, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm. Would you believe Saul if, 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 if you were David? No, hey, I have sinned. Just go home. Don't worry about me anymore. Well, by now, David, David knows better. Even though Saul says, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Well, Saul was a broken record at this point, and David sensed his motives. And that's why he tells him, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. When you read that, it almost seems like David is just talking about himself because he does follow it. He basically says the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. And then he goes on to say how he did not kill Saul. He held back because he's the Lord's anointed. But it's not so much of a statement just about David. It's, it's a condemnation of Saul. Because think about it this way. If the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, what does he do for those who are unrighteous and unfaithful? He doesn't reward them for that. It's the exact opposite of that. Right? He brings punishment. He brings discipline. So it's the exact opposite. So what David is saying is that, hey, Saul, I hear you again. You're saying you're sorry again. You've done this to me over and over and over, but I want you to know something. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to forgive you like you're asking, but I want you to know something. The Lord judges perfectly. And the Lord judges according to your righteousness and your faithfulness. So when you walk away from here and you listen to the words of men more than God and you listen to your own heart and you follow your evil desires again, I want that statement to be in your head. God judges according to our righteousness and our faithfulness. Now, let this be a lesson to all, no matter who you are, the Lord repays. That's an encouragement and a warning. God will repay the injustice in the world. Everybody is like, amen. Um, we're waiting for it. We are waiting for the day, right? We're praying for it, waiting for it. I can't wait for the Lord to come. I can't wait for him to just uh, bring his justice upon the world. It, it's going to be awesome seeing everybody else get what they deserve. Y'all know me better than that, right? It's an encouragement and a warning. Yes, God will pay the injustice, will repay the injustice in the world, including the injustice you are guilty of. Yeah, you're in that picture too. Remember, we go back to the beginning. You're not innocent. You've sinned against God. You sin against God, so therefore there's something for you to pay. Unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees, you're done, right? That's the example that Jesus gave anyway. You're done. So unless you're completely perfect, and of course Jesus at the time was using exaggeration, and I use it now too, unless you're perfect, you're done. Pharisees thought they were perfect. 
Jesus said, no, they're far from it. They're going to receive justice as well. They're going to receive my wrath. Well, because we will be judged according to our righteousness and our faithfulness, well, guess what? We're not going to pass that test. Because we have sin, because we are sinful. So in other words, if we are going to be a judge according to our righteousness and our faithfulness, that means we need a deliverer. We need Christ. Philippians 3, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. You hear that? That he may gain Christ and be found in him. If he's not found in Christ, then he has no righteousness and he has no faithfulness. The same is true for you. May you consider everything else rubbish in order that you gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, because we cannot do that perfectly, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Hallelujah. Amen. That's what we need. That's what we need. As sinners, we must remember that injustice is a two-way street. We have all been wronged, and we're quick to call that out. But on the other side, we have wronged others. I was having trouble coming up with illustrations here to help you connect the dots. And uh, God gave me one this morning. And I, I woke up this morning, and I woke up to a, a sound that is... You, you hear it and you know what it is because I've already dealt with it several times. We've been four years in our house and it, it's, it's not fun to wake up to septic tank problems on a Sunday morning, much, much less any morning, right? So I hear the toilets making a noise and I know our septic tank is full, right? And I'm thinking, I'll, you just start, I, I don't need this right now. You start, you know, thinking about what it's going to cost. When you have septic tank problems, you can pretty much guarantee if you have to vacuum it out, it's going to be about 500 bucks. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, I, I don't need this right now. I don't need this on a Sunday. I don't need this right now. And I remember I, I walked into the room and I told my wife, I'm like, man, I need some prayer because I'm just not feeling it today. I have to teach Sunday school. I have to preach a sermon. And I, my heart's just not in it. I, I, I got to be honest, my heart's not in it. And if I would have just said that and say, hey, pray for me, and, and it would have ended right there, I think I would have done okay. But then the kids start coming into the picture, right? The kids start coming into the picture, and daddy this, daddy that, and this, that, and every little thing that they did and said, man, I just, I just started to erupt. I started yelling at them. I, just, I was just angry, and it was just coming out at me. And then I, all of a sudden, I, I realized it. Like, that's, man, that's, that's my example. I'm, I, I, what, the way I was treating my children was an injustice. We, we tend to look at other things and we say, oh, I've been wronged. But how about when we wrong others? I was in the, I'm going to preach a sermon about God's justice and injustice. And in the middle of that, I was not being just. I was being wrong. To my children, I had to stop, I had to apologize to all of them. Like, there's no way I could come up here and preach about that when I just 
I just went full force on them this morning. And I asked for their forgiveness. Explained to them what had happened, why I did that. That was our conversation on the way over here. Hey, it's tough. Because we think, hey, I've been wronged. But we need to look very closely at our own lives. Get the plank out of our lives before we get the speck out of somebody else's, right? Do you recognize when you are unjust to somebody? Do you realize you need to ask for forgiveness? Do you realize there needs to be a change of heart in you? There needs to be true repentance. All those things are true for us as well as for other people. See, as sinners, we must remember that injustice is a two-way street. Just as we have wronged others, just as we have been wronged by others, we have wronged others. Consider the cross. That is the grossest injustice in human history. I just told you we are guilty of sin. Christ was not. That is the grossest injustice ever. And we're guilty of that. We are responsible for that injustice against God. But God is so good that he used the cross for his glory and our good. God will use the injustice done to Christ on the cross to bring about his justice on the world. Isn't that awesome how God turned that around? The injustice done to Christ, he's going to use that to bring justice to the world. Those who trust will be justified. Those who reject will be judged, plain and simple. And then the last point, God will seek justice for all. I gave you a definition of injustice, and let me give you a definition of justice. Divinely righteous action, whether taken by God, that promotes equality among humanity, used to uplift the righteous and oppress and debasing the unrighteous and oppressors. I I like the ending of that. God uses justice to lift up the righteous and to bring down the unrighteous. That's what he does with his justice. In a sinful world, injustice is expected. But listen to this. God's justice is inevitable. It is. We don't have to worry about people getting away with things. We must notice how helpless Saul was to the justice of God. We're we're starting to see the justice of God play out in his life. Notice, when you look at that chapter, notice Saul. He picks his 3,000 best men again. These are his very best soldiers to go with him. He's on a hunt for David again. So he picks the... 3,000 men. Now, now think of how much of an overreach that was. David, at best, had 600 men. Most of the time, he had 400 men with him. Saul is taking 3,000 men to hunt him down. And 3,000 highly skilled, best of the best type of soldiers. So when we see this picture, Saul is in this camp. He's resting for the night he decides it's time to go to sleep and Saul's in the middle of the camp with his um, his general right beside him Abner and then 
2,999 equipped to the teeth, armed to the teeth, just soldiers, like best of the best type of guys. They're all sleeping around him. I'll tell you what, what gives me comfort at night a lot of times that um, I, I put my alarm on, if I can hear it, that means somebody's coming in, I get to take action. It at least alerts me, so that gives me some peace of mind if somebody tries to break into my house in the middle of the, in the, middle of the night. This must have given peace to Saul. Like, he's sleeping. He's like, no one's going to come and mess with me. I have, I have all these guys around me, and uh, I can sleep peacefully. Well, even with all that protection around him, David was still able to enter the camp and have access to Saul. And the whole point of him having access to Saul was to show Saul how vulnerable he was, how vulnerable he really was. See, David took his uh, Saul's spear and his jug of water. Think about this. You're in the wilderness. That's the, des- that, that's the desert. What do you need? You need a weapon and you need your water. David took the things that Saul was depending on for life. He took those two things. Took it, they were right at his head. He was able to go through Saul's army, have access to him. Why? Because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon these 3,000 mighty men. Sometimes we're like, oh, I don't have to worry about anything. I'm fully protected. And we forget the sovereignty of the Lord and the power of the Lord. See, after that, David, he goes off a distance from Saul, a safe distance, because he's no fool. He, he intends to wake up everybody, so he's going to be far off when he wakes everybody up. And he yells out to everybody. He's like, David, Abner. He's speaking to Abner first. Abner gets up. And then he speaks to Saul. One Saul recognizes him. David speaks to Saul and he warns him that he will be judged according to his righteousness and his faithfulness or lack thereof. And then he does something that's really important to the story. He holds his spear and David reveals how close he was able to get. I think it's at that point Saul realized something. If he hadn't realized it already, that his life was in the hands of the Lord. Maybe David realized that too. That the injustice that he had been receiving from Saul for these past nine years, that the Lord had control of that. And that he was doing something with it. See, God's justice comes upon all. It's inevitable. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Yeah, brothers and sisters, his justice is inevitable. Maybe you're a person who's living the way you want now or thinking your way is right. Maybe you have people around you supporting you in your sin. You might think that you have no one to answer to. You're just storing up wrath for yourself. Because we all have someone to answer to. We must never lose sight of the fact that what a person does in the body, whether good or evil, it matters to God. His justice will not let it pass without retribution, and no matter 
What we do, his justice will prevail. There is no one that can stand against the Lord. Galatians chapter 6 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Righteousness and faithfulness. Now, think about this. This conversation that Saul is having with David, this would be the very last time that David is speaking to Saul. The very last time. This would be the last chance that Saul would have to truly repent and follow the Lord. That's pretty sobering to think about. Here, Saul is about to face the justice of God. What if you were to face the justice of God today? Would you feel confident in your own righteousness and faithfulness to escape his wrath? If not, then I plead with you and I tell you, turn to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your souls. And I also plead with you and tell you that if you are a Christian and you have wronged somebody and you think you can walk through life without going back and apologizing, you're wrong. God will discipline you for that. If it's a wife, it's a husband, if it's a child, if it's a friend that you haven't talked to in 10 years and you knew you wronged them and you know it's still wrong today and you've never, ever, ever said anything, you better go back and fix it. That is a command of God. You need to humble yourself. You need to take accountability for what you've done. You need to seek forgiveness. Yes, from the Lord, but also the person that you've wronged. You shouldn't be able to walk through life feeling okay for wronging somebody and not taking accountability for it. 